So yeah. the coup. <laughs> How's <rather>. that going? <laughs> Let's just give a quick check in. It's coup watch. What are we calling it? Coup watch twenty twenty. I don't know. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Is democracy going to end forever? Is like, democracy? <laughs> question <Yes>. mark. <laughs> the dev panel please consider becoming a patron it helps us continue to do this show you can support us at patreon.com slash death panel pod you get access to monday's bonus episode plus all our back catalog which is now i think over over a hundred episodes that you get access to by becoming yeah. a patron wow. yeah it's just and think you about get a how many hours of pleasurable listening yeah. <laughs> many of them good yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <I was laughs> gonna say. there's some really good content i feel yeah. confident bragging there you know, yeah. I'm proud of the work we're doing. Yeah. Anyways, back to this whole coup situation. The thing that <laughs> um, frustrates me the most about the whole coup thing is actually the rhetoric that the Biden team have adopted towards it, including like, if he doesn't accept the results, like, that's why we've got White House security and security will escort him out. And it's like, could you just not say like, yeah, the concession speech is a norm that was established at a certain point was not even from like the founding of America or anything. Yeah, you didn't need speech. a concession speech to have a transition of power in the 19th century, right? right? right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like the concession speech is just a thing. It's a cute thing that people do now. Right. And right. it doesn't materially affect the outcome at all. All right. Can we, can we like go through some, just uh, some, some basic realities of what is not going to happen here? Yeah. <laughs> can we just yeah, like, yeah. Can we just like hit this like really, Really quickly, I mean, okay, so the first thing, like, there are a couple different, like, uh, coup routes, if you will. So, like, the first is, like, the the, the lawsuit. And, right. the like, the lawsuits are, like, take a very quick peek at them. They're frivolous. They're, like, one of them alleges that somebody, there was a large man near-ish someone at a polling, <laughs> at a, like, a county cool. site. So, so mysterious. Uh, yeah. So, and the other thing is. There's not even at this point enough ballots being uh, contested in enough states to negate the Electoral College victory. So, like, just mm-hmm. on a pure, uh, like, lawsuit, just counting up the ballots, uh, you know, this criterion, like, that would be nothing. Right. Now, it's possible, okay, so you have, like, the outs- out- outside chance of, like, a, a wacky judge doing something um, – like really unexpected and crazy and just being like that sort of, I don't know, the um, general Jack Ripper character, um, <laughs> you know, but yeah. which I think is like, whatever, since since Strange Love, that is like a very important part of the American imaginary. Uh, because <laughs> guess what? We have general Jack Rippers out there. That's right. Um, that figure plays a very central role in the fabric of American society. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, the... That role is, however, same, a norm, not a law. <laughs> <laughs> right. But at the same time, it's just like if if there are, you know, enough Biden electors to give him the Electoral College on December 14th, he will, you know, win the Electoral College vote that they will be sent on to Congress. There's nothing really 
there to like uh, challenge that. The mm-hmm. the idea that you know Barr is going on and like continuing to contest these things. I mean, I guess it the real uh, central problem it poses is to the transition, uh, mm-hmm. and it holds up the transition because it prevents the head of the government services agency or the general services administration from um, declaring that a like a new president exists, which is a kind right. of funny, very papal uh, sort of thing. Like they don't, I, I don't know that they release the doves, but uh, yeah, but it's it like white something smoke or something. Joe Biden you know, will become the next president, but he's going to have to move to Avignon. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Avignon, Pennsylvania. Who will be? Yes, exactly. <laughs> or Avignon, the, Delaware. The winter White House, right? right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but I mean, so like. You know, there are like material effects of this and I we can we should get into them. But like at the level of the actual potential for a, you know, theft of the election Mm -hmm. to to like happen here, I think is really, really low. Uh, There are a lot of other things to be concerned about. But if if it's a coup attempt, if you want to call it that, um, although, yeah, we can get into the semantics, but uh, it's a really like bad one yeah (laughs) like yeah uh i agree Mm -hmm. with you phil it seems potentially either slightly overblown or mostly i think yeah having a lot of uh detrimental consequential effects in terms of things like trump voter sentiment and Mm -hmm. just you know the continued uh you know it it makes sense as like a a like a almost a strategy to continue to mobilize these people and keep them like very agitated which is obviously a very uh, I don't know, troublesome thing yeah. overall. Yeah. But I would say that in the context of what was it like last night, they announced 140,000. We hit like 140,000 new COVID cases in a day. Um, you know, mm-hmm. deaths and hospitalizations are trending up to the point that like we're getting like saturated in right. certain hospital areas where you're going to have to see North like, Dakota is full. Right. Like They're literal, having to transfer yeah. patients. They're transfer allowing patients, different places, triage, COVID positive yeah. nurses to work in nursing homes right, right. now. Yikes. And it's, it's important really to awful. remember that death statistics lag infections by about three weeks. <sighs> mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. that it's also very important to remember that the people who are being hospitalized are extreme cases that require hospitalization it's not just like oh there's a thousand people in the hospital that means a thousand people with covid are symptomatic no that's right. a thousand people right. who were too sick to Breathe. be sick at home yeah right, right. so who yeah. need mechanical ventilation or who need therapeutic uh blood thinners or who need uh courses of steroids or right. you know whatever but can mm-hmm. we talk for a second about like the link between these two things the public yeah. attention to or sort of worry or concern about like the coup and then the sort of uh, the the actual material circumstances of, of like COVID deaths. Like one thing right. I've thought for a while is that at, at some point, I, I think the attentive American public, like the, the, the people who like really pay attention to politics and are, you know, which is I think maybe, you know, it's not it's not everybody by any means. Like if it's a core of people that end up mattering a lot. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, they've become so desensitized to number mm-hmm. one, like counter majoritarianism, and <laughs> I, I think like fundamentally like a pretty anti democratic strategy that the Republicans have used for a very long time, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And and that to me like the undemocratic features of the election 
were in certain ways some of the things that make it harder now for Trump to contest it. So like, yeah, we have a lot more routinized, regularized election procedures now. Um, But at the same time, it is a lot harder to register to vote and to vote in many states than it used to be. So many Mm -hmm. of like the procedures that make it uh, hard for Trump to contest the election are ironically some of the things that keep the electorate artificially smaller than it would otherwise be. <laughs> so, right. but, but the thing is that doesn't, that process is like big and amorphous and it doesn't create like a story that people can latch onto. Whereas, I, and, and I think the same thing is like rather unfortunately happening with, with uh, COVID deaths, um, which is that like the, the larger numbers you know, just because they're larger, it doesn't necessarily mean that, like, it changes people's gestalt about the situation. Right. Like what? And, and the question then is, like, what will it take? And I think it's why the you know, it's worth like I'm not such a uh, just cynic about things. And I'm like, oh, not nothing burger, you know, mm-hmm. oh, Trump, Trump doing this stuff, complete nothing burger. It's like, no, no, this is like fundamentally the sign of a sclerotic uh, democracy <laughs> yeah. and yeah. It, it absolutely does matter but it doesn't matter because it will shape the outcome like tomorrow it matters because it is a sign of where we are it is a sign of how morbid things have become but mm-hmm. I don't I mean but I think the the challenge is like exactly what persuades people that uh, maybe things should be otherwise right and I think the same thing is even more true with, with like COVID is like what exactly is it going to take to uh um, really change our approach to this. And right. I, I think those two things are linked. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a similar thing, which is just in a funny way in a, in a different world, I'd love to like sit around and like, you know, crack jokes for an hour about like a shitty, like shoddy, a coup attempts or whatever. Yeah, like, um, like most inept coup of ever. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. Um, ha, ha, ha. but <laughs> it's interesting how it has been taken up. And I think that, I think that the fact that we hit like 140,000 new cases, uh, the other day has curtailed this a little bit, but for a while I was getting really concerned that like so much of the energy would be drawn towards that. And the, like, cause already we're in this, like cases are rising. We're in a really bad, uh, spot. We're finally getting to the point where things like, you know, in New York city, uh, they're doing a repeat of like what, they appear to be doing a repeat of what happened in March where Mm -hmm. instead of saying, Oh God, cases are rising really quickly. Let's move really quickly and proactively to, you know, you know, to, to like STEM cases. Um, they're doing, you know, slow rollbacks like de Blasio announced yesterday that, uh, they'll start closing bars and restaurants at 10, uh, yeah, because you can only cool. get That's COVID gonna... between the hours of ten and eleven while yeah. inebriated. It's you know nocturnal, yeah. remember? You know? And it That's has to be it. on right. private property, as we discussed, as right. we discussed in our episode on Monday. If you're not on private property, you can't get COVID, right? That's, right, That's right, why right, you right. put if Much you put like an a indoor space on the street. Much you're like fine. a vampire, COVID only comes out at night. If you if it knocks on your door, you have to allow it in. Um, <laughs> and garlic garlic kills it. But anyway, the no, but. Uh, I mean, uh, my, my point, I guess my point is it's, you know, uh, I, and I understand that uh, I think, I think people feel a lot of, I don't know, either like anxiety or sort of like helplessness in terms of being able to actually meaningfully like change any of this. But I do feel like if there, if there's anything to mobilize around, it's not necessarily like this sort of like faux coup that's not necessarily, unless something like, unless something drastically changes where it becomes obvious that yes, like 
actions do need to be like taken or whatever uh, like against this but signs point to this just being like a a fun sideshow for the moment Mm -hmm. um but it does take attention away from hopefully actually trying to address any of this i feel Mm -hmm. like our covid response has been so much like an inversion of the of the like gramsci quote you know the gramsci thing like uh have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will mm-hmm. like we instead have optimism of the intellect and right. pessimism of the <laughs> right. will exactly. you know what i mean like yeah. we just we want to believe that it's going to be over as soon as possible that like the vaccine is going to save us that the eli lily map is going to save us that any like day now. Yeah, that any day now it's going to be fine and at the same time you know pessimism of the will as in like and you know the the, the impetus to do nothing about it mm-hmm. um and that's horrible i mean <laughs> that's like the worst well, you know it doesn't well, yeah. bode well yeah <laughs> well it is it is the weird thing and I, I always keep coming back to this paradox which is like there is at this point really really low trust in government when you measure it uh and it's like a lot lower than it's ever been but uh I, I don't know how you tap into this in the same like survey but there's somehow simultaneously this magic unstated belief i think I think that uh, everything will be all right, uh, (laughs) you know, in the end. And it's like the, um, you know, William James, like, will to believe um, Mm -hmm. that uh, we will be able to do this. And it's, you know, and then the question is, like, if people hold that belief, how do they think (laughs) uh, it will? That is the other sort of question I keep asking. But um, I mean, I think it's I I kind of think the thought process goes like some somewhat as such and it's like oh everything is terrible the government is terrible but you know this is america and everything's great here like (laughs) like i i mean i literally think it's possible to contain those two like simultaneous ideas in your head just yeah i mean a lot of our listeners particularly in europe have been reaching out this week to be like okay so like what does this like who mean what is actually (laughs) what is actually happening in america right now because i'm seeing all these like takes that are like well they're doing the coup well they're not doing the coup you can only do the coup if it's the cia doing it to brown people in a third country somewhere in the global (laughs) south and i don't actually get what on the ground logistics are going on and i've basically been saying you know essentially like what's happening is you've got uh i don't know like an effort to create confusion on mm-hmm. behalf yeah. of the conservative, um, the conservative Republican uh, establishment, right? They're sort of they've got uh, court challenges. They're citing voter fraud. Phil brought up the example of like there's a large man in the parking lot. <laughs> um, you've had people testifying saying like I saw this postal worker, you know, dumping seventeen thousand some large amount of ballots in here. The postal worker is asked again under oath, and they're like, No, I lied. You know, the mm-hmm. Well, and then the New York uh, then the New York Post publishes something saying that actually the guy recanted lying or like whatever. It's just yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a it's kind of a mess, actually. Yeah. That's just the best way to describe it is it's just yeah. kind of a huge fucking mess. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're claiming that the counting process is somehow corrupt. Basically, like anything that 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 conservatives can do right now to conserve confuse the narrative. They're mm-hmm. doing right. it. Well, you know, I, yeah, and I I think, and it's it's a very familiar, um, uh, you know, strategy to to, you know, when you are a counter majoritarian party, 
when it is hard, given your policies, to win an outright majority in elections, there are like two things that you have in, in the kit bag. One is like, luckily for the Republicans, we have a counter-majoritarian constitution. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> they, they basically have it's bumper bowling for them. Right. right. It's, it's like, you know, you, no gutter balls. Um, but the. Other thing that they have going for them is it is possible to, you know, sort of rhetorically construct this possibility that you never could have like it was impossible for you to have lost a majority of votes. And the only Mm -hmm. way you could have done it is if there was some sort of fraud. So even if which I think is likely going to be the case that there is no you know, actual, uh, you know, Trump's second term, as as Mike Pompeo said, you have this um, inability uh, for there to be like the legitimate exercise of of uh, of authority in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. or at the very mm-hmm. least, you know, it's impossible for these for the actions of people in the public sphere to be taken as as uh, as legitimate. And I think that right. that's, um, you know, that is a problem in and of itself. I mean, Mike, Mike Pompeo getting up and saying like there will be a second term of Trump, you know, that that's been something that I think a lot has been proved to a lot of people, particularly from outside of the United States, that that is what's going on. Right. And that they are actually a February budget, et cetera. Right. That yeah. they are actually trying to like make moves to like physically seize power in some sort of way. But I said, you know, in a lot of ways, like. It's actually scarier than that because this is a <laughs> this is sort of a longstanding practice of uh, a way to sort of drag compromise in as this like necessary component, right? Because for every press conference where the Trump team reaffirms their right to be in office, you have more fodder for the Democrats to say, see, we have to meet them in the middle. Right. Right. Also, you know, we've got look at what's at risk. Right. And what this effectively does as a strategy is it creates this sort of mythology of like the threat, which regardless of whether the threat is real or not, what the actual like result is, is that we end up with more conservative policies going forward because there is this idea that if you don't block together and go Mm -hmm. with what the corporate moderates are asking for everything's on the line hell will go to a handbasket so it's a really effective tool at like social control i think also you would need uh like military and intelligence agencies to be like full bore on board with it um right in a way and i think in a situation where as you know like as as we know from the the uh you know liberal valorization of james comey it Mm -hmm. appears that like the culture of for example like the fbi uh appears to be that they look at trump as uh as sort of like a denigrating embarrassment or something to their like pencil pushing Mm -hmm. proper Mm -hmm. you know military control of the Mm -hmm. united states um versus like I don't know if you look at the people that they are just starting to pick for the incoming Biden administration seems like, you know, the kind of thing that military defense and intelligence agencies would all want because they're probably going to get a bunch of new toys and contracts mm-hmm. and stuff like, you know, right. I mean, what what better time to be like creating a way to valorize the sort of military intelligence uh, complex in the United States than at a moment where you have massive calls for defunding the military industrial complex and Mm -hmm. defunding the police. You're seeing this from like Democratic operatives. You're seeing this from, you know, 
Democrats in name only, like Joe Manchin, who said defund my butt on Twitter last night, um, which I won't even acknowledge beyond that. But, you know, it's like you've <laughs> got all that these. It would be a really good Waylon Jennings song. I, re- I do maintain <laughs> defund and we, my butt. <laughs> and as we all know, what that really means is abolish my butt. But, abolish right. my butt. <laughs> yeah. Defund as a pathway to abolish Joe Manchin's <laughs> butt. So, you know, you have uh, sort of a this process, which is going to play out, narratively speaking, that's going to, for a lot of people, I think, contribute to the valorization of law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. If like, for example, I think if the transfer of power did happen in sort of a spectacular way, like in, I mean, literally in terms of spectacle, mm-hmm. uh, like a spectacular way of quote unquote White House security, mm-hmm. uh, you know, escorting Trump mm-hmm. off the premises, like frankly, in terms of like social reproduction, like the general American psyche or whatever, whatever you want to call it, like what worse uh, situation than to basically be like, yeah, here assuring essentially liberals like, look, like you need cops or security or whatever because right? look at what they just did. They got rid of the orange Where man that you don't like very without, much, you know, and then to everyone else it looks like it, then it then it looks literally you give them a photo op as though it's a coup mm-hmm. as though biden going in is a coup well and right. what i was just saying the thing too is that like whatever is happening this is happening as we're saying at the absolute worst possible moment in the context of covid yeah mm-hmm. right exactly. um both in the t- context of covid and the current like conversation around like policing yeah mm-hmm. although i guess i wouldn't say getting yeah distracted by but just like it is at the very least something that is like a con- it seems more concrete or discreet like oh here's this very this thing that is like actually happening in real time and has effects that will play out in the next series of weeks whereas covid has become uh something that is possible is like difficult to unthink uh mm-hmm. for many people and i think it's like particularly easy to get uh distracted by because what there is to uh look forward to when you really uh pop open the hood is not really encouraging you know? yeah so yeah i mean already like what you're saying too like if you when you pop open the hood right who is under there who from the biden team are we you know worried is not going to make it into office and it's not like an amazing group of people it doesn't give me a lot of a lot of exciting, uh, warm, fuzzy feelings about public policy inside. It gives me a lot of anxiety have, uh, about public-private what's, partnerships. What, what's that sentiment? Uh, what was that sentiment? Hope? <laughs> D- dread? <laughs> I'm making, dread? Never mind. Dread? Sorry. No, kidding. Vince got it. Thank you, Vince. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I'm there with you. <laughs> <laughs> Biden unveiled two lists this week. Uh, a COVID task force and his uh, transition team picks. And I, I think there are a couple of people that we should go into here. Mm-hmm. So so I want to start with the COVID task force, if that's OK. Yeah. Um, this this is a list of people that um, some of some of their names you may have heard before. It's about, I don't know what, like 12, 13 people. And it's a lot of Obama era people. It's a lot of Clinton era people. There are a lot of people who have been you know, working for some pretty shady biotech uh, defense companies for the past couple of years. It's generally not an amazing group, but there are a couple people in here. Obviously, like a lot of a lot of people have talked about like death panel fave Zeke Emanuel, who Mm -hmm. is he's on the COVID task force. Yeah. And um, 
But there are some other people in the COVID task force that I think we should get into before Zeke, because, I mean, we've talked about Zeke a lot. Zeke's the Zeke's the guy who is Rahm Emanuel's brother, who very much like seems like he would be a regular on the Dr. Oz show. He's the your life has no meaning after you hit 75 guy. Yeah, uh, which exactly. a lot of people were very quick to point out. Um, yeah. Yeah. So his thesis is basically that you don't really see people doing good work after the age of 70. And when you're not productive anymore, really, how much value can your life have? Um, Wait, Biden's 77? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. No, I think I agree with that theory, actually. (laughs) Logan's run, but like really old. Yeah. Cut off, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Logan's shuffle. He's the I hope I die at 75 guy. And um, I'm, you know. Well, we also and we also uh, talked about there's a there's an old episode, actually, if you want to hear about one of uh, Zeke's particular takes on COVID, there's an old mm-hmm. episode that we can point to, which is um, called Diplomatic Immunity. But it was about a, um, a white paper that Zeke Emanuel put out that was about um, implement like basically bioethics of uh, implementing COVID immunity passports. Yeah. And it's a hoot. So. <laughs> it was such a fucking mess. Yeah. I mean, it, in it, it's like he goes through the ethics of like whether or not the working class can be like bribed to infect themselves with uh, COVID in order to like retain employment. It's absolutely just. And he decided ultimately. Bore, like bad. Yeah. Not, not a problem. F- I guess we'll find out do. what he decides. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, so yeah, I'm sure we can uh, expect some really ableist app based solutions from Zeke's team. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I just point out one thing, which is so many of these fuckers on this COVID task force list have airport books. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh yeah. That's actually, I want to I want to get into that because there's I mean, like, OK, like, let me just give you my general impression, which is like, I'm not at all surprised by the fact that, like, there's a lot of Obama era people on this team. Yeah. I mean, th- that that is that is the holding pen strategy. It's not as if there was another cadre of people like w- awaiting with bated breath in Delaware, right. you know, uh, <laughs> in the base, you know, to, to, to do this. And it's not as if it's also not as if like the Bernie Biden compromise concordat that was, uh, you know, negotiated <laughs> this summer was really going to result in a lot of uh, compromise picks. And, and the other thing I would note is that like, <clears throat> don't read so much into the the full list of names here because it there could be sort of like highlight type celebrity like picks um that right. come sort of after that emerge from from some discussion so like with that proviso there's a thing that i think is happening um in this like world of like expertise that's like getting brought into the bureaucracy, which is the airport bookization of <laughs> like uh, of knowledge. And I, to me, the person who is the most emblematic of this more than anyone else is Atul Gawande. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. we have to like go in on Atul Gawande. Yes. Um, not, not necessarily just because of his like ties to these, uh, corporate ventures that we have talked about extensively on earlier episodes, which we could get into. But the fact that Gawande's real claim to fame, his first claim to fame as a researcher or as a like public writer for the New Yorker and figure was <laughs> to promote a an incredibly wrong-headed notion of why the United States spends so much on healthcare, which mm-hmm. basically was a form of victim blaming um, yeah. that the, the U.S. had these 
super utilizers, which was a term that I think had maybe been around in health economic circles before Gawande, but Gawande certainly popularized it in like The New Yorker, um, but, they, but the, the term also like, Freakonomics, you know, the term certainly wasn't as frequently used at like it wasn't used the way that he used it. Right. No. And, and, and the other thing, you know, so like he promoted this idea that like really why we spend so much is, oh, people are using too much healthcare. So like, oh, all of the <laughs> cost cutting and like um, sort of rationing strategies that I mean, really, I mean, frankly, uh, not only were were like bad for patients, but were like bad as a thing that Democrats <laughs> came to embrace politically. Yeah, right. It's Absolutely. a really like you want to know why the death panel myth or whatever had such sticking power. <laughs> It's in part because there had been an embrace. I mean, and I think in, in many ways it was bipartisan um, that like cost control should be the main goal of mm-hmm. uh, uh, of like American health policy. And I should note that like this was absolutely the conventional wisdom yeah. uh, yes, exactly. in Congress, even before Gawande. What Gawande did was give it the sheen of expertise by publishing this sort of the New Yorker article and the sort of airport book style um, approach. I mean, I'm, I'm very seriously. He has one article asking why American healthcare can't be more like the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> I yeah. kid you not. Um, yeah. But the, I mean. The thing about this is like his ideas and the ideas about uh, super utilizers as like the driver of healthcare costs, they've been roundly eviscerated in healthcare mm-hmm. economics. Uh, uh, Uwe Reinhardt published a book several years later. There have been tons of studies that just over and over and over again demolish this idea. But yet, because the uh, actual uh, material like politics of controlling prices is so anathema, uh, to like the median member uh, of Congress, like actually doing something about like healthcare prices, um, it retains this sheen of truth, and and people like one day are absolutely part of that problem. Right, a- and this is the thing is that they inhabit this world which is not at all responsible to the sort of peers in the discipline or the idea that like, yeah, maybe at some point when you're wrong, you know, you should be very public about how wrong you were, et cetera, et cetera. No, no, no. It's just like he is his and his like career trajectory and like the world in which he inhabits permits people who have wrong and bad ideas to absolutely never have to answer for it and just get hired over and over again by increasingly right. prestigious uh, government institutions and firms. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's mm-hmm. like the click baitification of uh, <laughs> policy idea, basically. And I mean that quite literally because the the sort of genealogy of the way that Atul Gawande failed up, essentially, um, especially like, specifically uh, since uh, like the, the Obama era is uh, this like the the sort of inciting incident of this was um, not even just the the super utilizer thing like the theory that there are these super utilizers like B yep uh, who uh, who take Guilty up a disproportionate charged <clears throat> because it is true that like that a small percentage of the overall uh, population are like the most expensive uh, like quote unquote expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, patients or whatever, because they're yes. you know people with uh, <laughs> rare orphan diseases, chronic illnesses, etc. Like well, what, sometimes not even you. it's oftentimes like a a uh, young woman with migraines. Right, exactly. Right? But they, and you know, and so in in like a, in a later article, for example, when he talks about super utilizers, they would like print this. Uh, there's a super utilizers article that Gawande published in the New Yorker that included like 
an illustration oh. of like an overweight man wrapped in uh, bandages uh, with literally with a price tag, like a $3,500,000 price tag around mm-hmm. his neck as a chain. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's cute. Excellent um, image. But, right. Great. Really re- great way to demonize. Love uh, to be the, perceived the sick like that. And, uh, uh, but like within that article too, they pointed out, you know, Within this one zip code, there's this this one person who has in in a period of three years, 364 doctor uh, or medical visits of some kind. That must be a sign that this person is getting lousy medical treatment. (laughs) Uh, No, not necessarily. Like there have been years where uh, where, you know, B has been in the hospital a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a huge percentage of the overall days of the year and she's getting great care that she needed to be here on the podcast with you today. And we're not running <laughs> like every fucking test. Like it's not, right. it's not like someone, you know, like me, you know, one of the cases that they, that they specifically point out is, a they're, tr- they're going through the database trying to find an expensive patient and they find someone they're like, Oh, this is the most expensive, expensive patient. Oh wait, actually she's just coming for migraines over and over and over again and she's not being treated but this ignores the fact that like no it sounds like her migraines are bad and being managed right now right but back to my but back to my point the in the in the earlier article before he even talked about like super utilizers uh he was you know the the whole theory of the case uh essentially in this this article called the cost conundrum uh that was out in the new yorker uh in like 2009 was that there are that like basically the the high cut co- that Gawande believes essentially that the reason that the United States has such expensive health care, which leads to all of these like economic problems or whatever, and like people like, you know, having problems with their health care or, or the or the cost, the high cost of their health care, that the, the root cause of that is something called overutilization, which is mm-hmm. this like super utilizer is like same idea as the super utilizer thing. But the the particular the but the seed of this this basically like uh, as reported I guess in the New York Times and has, as has become like a whole thing like there's a great Adam Gaffney piece about both the mm-hmm. the Atul Gawande uh, <laughs> scam and the Yuve mm-hmm. Reinhardt uh, like sort of um, like responses and, and everything but um, basically as you know as is widely known essentially this uh, this theory of the case was basically, you know, again, played out in the New Yorker in this like essentially think piece that then I guess Obama read or someone in his close orbit read that then became, uh, according to the New York Times, quote unquote, required reading in the Obama White Mm -hmm. House as Mm -hmm. they were going into the ACA fight. Mm -hmm. And so this, yeah, then becomes like the underpinning for and, you know, obviously it's not just go one day it's like between that and some of many of the other people in the sort of obama orbit which is now the biden orbit um there's this whole like nudge economics idea nudge people into making slightly better choices uh, Mm -hmm. or whatever and that's going to like solve the the material problems uh present in capitalist society somehow right uh, i mean this this line of thinking has inspired some of the things that we've covered over and over and over again on the show which is like workplace wellness initiatives yeah. right the the idea that if you like create these interventions right that it's really like the issue is that we've got overutilization both because patients are lazy and bad at following advice and they you know have like 
inherent problems which prevent them from being good, like despair. They're just like too depressed to take their blood pressure medication or whatever. Or they just keep or they just keep being genetically predisposed to diabetes. Like how dare they? <laughs> yeah, brood. And then there's this <laughs> other component that that sort of casts providers as seeing patients like ATMs. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And that that has like this whole second branch that that also like developed within the psychiatric field specifically, which is the sort of idea that like doctors uh, sort of have this propensity to inflate the need for diagnostics, ordering more tests than are necessary. You know, they there's often examples cited that, oh, you know, this person who had one inflammatory heart condition like, you know, 10 years ago, once a year is going for a CT scan to just check that there's no damage to her heart. And, you know, what kind of cancer are we going to give her with that useless CT scan? And (laughs) it's just, you know, it's so funny because so many of these arguments are sort of arguing like we need a holistic approach to care. We need to like address the social determinants of health because people are too stupid to take care of themselves and they don't know how to make the smart choices. And it's like, okay, you're, you're a third of the way there. And then you just (laughs) completely drive off the bridge and you go straight into austerity, (laughs) austerity, patronizing and like behavioral nudging or whatever. In a way like this, this piece, uh, the cost conundrum was one of the things that like radicalized me, the creation Mm -hmm. of the death panel, requires an Atul Gawande to, <laughs> to create the propaganda for this show to happen. Right. Right. I'm not, I, I'm he, he not is, excited that he's Gould involved. of this podcast. Though there are, you know, there again, are there, there are many yeah. like him. I mean, I just want to point out also, you know, on this, on this COVID task force, um, I'll just introduce them by their airport books. Uh, Vivek Murthy, who wrote together the healing power of human connection in a sometimes lonely world, which is the same, idea that B is talking about, uh, except for it's all hinged around instead of saying like, it's like saying we need to, it is saying we need to look at all these problems holistically. And then it's saying the one linchpin of this is loneliness, human loneliness. And then David A. Kessler, who, uh, wrote Mm. a book, the end of overeating, take control of the taking control of the insatiable American appetite. Um, it's basically like being like, think yourself thin, positive mental yeah. attitude. I'm all right. You're all right. If you're all right, you can be more thin, less right. overweight, whatever. <laughs> you know like, what I mean? It's like boring pro-military Marianne Williamson. Oh basically. yeah. It's like, yeah, it's the kind of book that like, that seems to just spontaneously reproduce itself right like you you see one bad version of the book and you go down into some like suggested books thing and there's 42 variations on you know think yourself thin and think yourself Mm -hmm. happy and you know combating cedar loneliness on that on that point though how pissed do you think uh marion williamson is that she was like not picked for this task force. She's like, I've sold more books. I've sold more airport books than fucking any of these people. If that's the criteria, what the fuck am I not doing on this task force? <laughs> I'm not force? sure she has actually. She hasn't. Yeah. yeah. Really? She's, not, I as, mean, she's yeah. not as best selling as these boys. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I will say at least on Murphy, it's like, uh, you know, it's not that look like there's a lot of research out there on loneliness. Right. Uh, loneliness is, really, really bad. Um, the isolation that uh, our current political economy helps to enable is really bad. But it's just sort of like, I mean, for me, the like 
the paradox of, of American public health is we spend, you know, billions and billions of dollars every year on institutions that we know, that we absolutely know are right. injurious to public health. We spend billions of dollars yeah. every year mm-hmm. on a penal system that is a like leading vector for disease, <laughs> including COVID, right? Yeah. And then we spend tiny little increments of money, just tiny little baby amounts of money <laughs> on public health, which, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, in, uh, on, on the solution uh, to the problem. So it's like, it's not that I don't discount, like, Mur- like Murthy and Murthy is, I think, different to an extent than think one. But like, for me, it's like, you want, you want some people there that like, really sort of understand the uh, major forces that, or, or like, or at least themselves fo- focus on the major forces that have contributed to the real, like, raw material problems that exist in, in American public health. And, you know, I think from, from my perspective, it's like the, the, the place that you start is with, you know, the ability of people to, like, provide uh, for mm-hmm. their own needs under capitalism, which uh, do- doesn't really exist uh, right now. So I mean, yeah, it's I, I don't know. And and the other thing is like, it's 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 hard because these people will seem, I think, innocuous at the very least. Like they're not grimace and the Hamburglar, which ran the COVID <laughs> task force, you know, <laughs> before. But I think it's um, but it is like. Yeah, the problems that we have to tackle are huge and his and systemic, and like an airport book approach no, isn't going to cut yeah. it. Mm-mm. Right. That, I mean, that's the thing. Like, yeah, lonely. Obviously, loneliness is like a there. Like, there are health problems to loneliness. There's a lot of literature on that. Like, that's a huge. That is that that is an undeniable yeah, fact. Right. Far more However, credible than say the super utilizer myth. Right, right. Yes. Far more credible than the super utilizer myth, which is complete hokum however (laughs) the uh however you know saying okay we're going to hyper target the loneliness factor which i suspect is the is the reason why things like um a long time ago we've talked about and we've continued to reference because it's so funny rent a grandson yes humana's bold goals uh initiative which is a medicaid or sorry a medicare advantage program which which like yeah one of the one of the options that you can tailor in your special little package for this medicare advantage package is you can yeah do a rent a grandson quote unquote uh Mm -hmm. program where you you know get uh, I don't know someone to come and spend time with you. Anyway, whatever. That's you a, so that's a whole app. thing. But you do like Uber, but for children, right. to old people, it's <laughs> great. Senior loneliness. It's is the that problem. what they claim so, Hillary Clinton was doing in her basement? Oh mm-hmm. God, sorry. <laughs> so that, I'll so just that, go. So that I mean, so that's a whole thing. Um, but you know, you're right, Phil. Like, I mean, people. I'm sorry if you if you want to be like some liberal commentator and like get up on your your little uh, blue check podium and say that like defunding the police is a fake idea like I'm sorry there's a te- there's a prison in Texas where six percent of the entire prison population has died of COVID already yeah that's, that's not even cases that, that's the real Those thing six percent have died deaths. yeah like if this like this will continue on that that percentage is going to go up. Mm-hmm. We should fucking free everybody. Anyway, I digress. But no, but you know, COVID is the fault of any individual who gets COVID because they simply were, you know, over utilizing their um, 
working capacity, <laughs> which, you know, they should have been smarter and used their family medical leave and stayed home when yeah. they were sick. You What's know, up so it's their fault. One day is, uh, are those prisoners super utilizers? Yeah, yeah. obviously. <laughs> right. Fuck you, they should buddy. know better. They need to, up, you know, they need to approach a holistic view of their own health. They're just simply not doing enough to manage their health because they landed in prison in the first place. You know right. what I yeah. mean, Artie? I mean, well, a crisis forces you to be very specific about what things must be held constant uh, or treated as constants and what you're allowed to treat as variable. And like right. there is, you know, very, very clearly it, it, you know, there are things that we have just taken for granted and are treating as constants. There are other things that we are treating as variables, but like the things that we now treat as variables are in terms of their ability to like move the needle as, you know, statisticians say, very, very tiny. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I think I've told this story before, but like I recall going to a conference on drug adherence and like for years and years, this literature had been dominated by like, what if we do this tiny little behavioral intervention to like, you know, incent people to like take the drugs. And it's like at some point somebody stood up and said, uh, yeah, why don't we just like make the drugs free? I like, you know, like it's, <laughs> no. it's, it was an idea that had never occurred to many of the people at this yeah, exactly. uh, conference. So I think now's a good time maybe to move on to the um, the transition team mm-hmm. beyond because yeah. this has just been us talking about the COVID. So that's team. just like, the COVID task force. Yeah, yeah, that's just the task force. So that's Appetizer. just like, right. yeah, that's just the snack. Um, and I think, uh, you know, anyone can tell you that the, the larger scope of Biden's transition team includes uh, such memorable uh, people as uh, executives from Amazon, Booz Allen, Hamilton, uh, Visa, J.P. Morgan, Capital so One, many Lyft, Rand Airbnb, Corp and people. Uber, Rand, yeah, and like, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> does that? It doesn't are, surprise me. Are you not me, entertained, just Vince? Just the they know, density. <laughs> they know government, all right. Yeah, they, right. They, big contracts. They know government. That they I know love that's not like, even. I gotta Don't say, be worried about that. If you look up like Save a lot of the people that are marked as like self-employed, they're all yeah. just like very wealthy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, um, and then you know, obviously, one one star of this outside of the realm of what we're going to talk about is, uh, well, w- you know, we can maybe get into it, but it's you know, one of the people who's like principal uh, claim to fame is being like an architect of Prop Twenty Two, which we talked about last mm-hmm. week mm-hmm. at length. So that's cool, great. Um, love to see the <laughs> love to see Biden it. administration rubber stamp that. Even though everything's fine, <laughs> yeah. Even though um, you know Biden and Harris can like come out and make statements like they, as they did, like after Prop Twenty Two passed, they like made statements saying that they don't support it. But then, I mean, the guys in the transition picking team, so mm-hmm. whatever. But I think that we're going to focus probably on the HHS picks because I don't yeah. think this is going to get a lot of media play necessarily. Mm-hmm. Otherwise. Probably not. There's some great there's some great people on this. You know, of course, it includes uh, someone from the Aspen Institute, which mm-hmm. as expected, you know, the HHS transition team is very private insurance friendly. There are no real surprises here in terms of like the framing of a lot of these people's backgrounds. Um, you have people, this is health and human services, by the way, which like, just cause a lot of people, I know that probably a lot of our listeners know it, but you know, yeah. Health and HHS human services. is not a, exactly a popular government agency. It's though it's our favorite here at the, <laughs> well, it's the largest, I think the largest domestic, 
uh, policy agency in the country, right? It's 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 huge. It's many, many, many things. It's not just Medicare, Medicaid, right? Right. right. No, and it, it's obviously like even more important who are in these positions in the context of of COVID, right? And mm-hmm. so you have a you have a lot of people who um, are involved, sort of on the in the like nonprofit sector, people who are like possibly it's kind of hard to tell where certain people are going to go, but like there are certain people who uh, have worked for companies like InQtel and all these sort of biodefense research things who work and invest in all these app technologies. So it does give you some idea, I think what they're looking at in in order like to sort of bolster whatever COVID response we're going to see out of the Biden administration. I think we're going to see a lot of sort of very, uh, Silicon Valley style interventions. There's been like, I looked up some of the media appearances from these people to just see like what else they're talking about with COVID. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, praising uh, European responses like France for, for having like app rollout and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. I think like one thing that's pretty clear to me, just like as a, you know, 10,000 foot view of this, this group of this brain trust, shall we call it this health and human services brain trust is that we're going to really see a lot of very technocratic posturing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to sort of be the primary arena of theater here. We're going to have the sort of Silicon Valley solutionism as a, as a big like drumbeat coming from this department. Yeah. And as a reminder, this, I mean, this is the agency that will basically oversee a lot of the operations of what becomes COVID response too. Yeah. I, I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect some major invasions of privacy too. Um, when it like with regards to contact tracing in particular, because you have a lot of people who have worked um, on projects and have written a lot of papers that are sort of about, you know, how can we use GPS technology for public health? So that mm-hmm. that does, I think, have some I, I don't know, it, it, it feels very, you know, uber which yeah. is in keeping with sort of the theme of well, and there are of a lot of department. budget people in here, too. Like, yeah, bi- like big drumbeat budget people. I think I think B has summed it up pretty well. Also, I would say that this is like kind of this is also uh, kind of an airport airport book mm-hmm. uh, grouping in in its own way, um, much like a lot of the the transition people. But I would like to just point out uh, one person who I think that we should be on the lookout for. For you know, these names aren't necessarily people who are going to be in uh, the administration, but this does paint a picture of like who's this is like who's potentially like picking and staffing roles who may end up being tapped for a role themselves. Um, and I would like to, uh, do you have any of you guys ever heard of, uh, this guy who's the team, one of the team leads on this, a guy called Robert Gordon. Mm -mm. No, he's in Michigan right now. He's like advising. He's like the, one of the main people advising, uh, governor Gretchen Whitmer, uh, about, uh, Michigan's whole deal. Um, for for covid uh but i do just want to point out this uh this to me i started looking into him and this shot up some immediate red flags um he is uh sort of in a similar vein to the sort of like nudge economics uh kind of situation we were talking about with all you gotta do is incentivize those patients properly right (laughs) right 
Um, so he basically his background is uh, before he was uh, in Michigan, he spent uh, four he spent four years at the uh, Office of Management and Budget as the deputy director uh, under Obama. Mm. Um, <clears throat> just going to read this quote from his uh, from his own bio. Uh, quote: He has been described as the quarterback for President Barack Obama administration's evidence based policy making initiatives which closely tied program funding to quality evaluation. (laughs) And um, I am just going to, I do have uh, one thing that I'm just going to send to you guys just so you can peruse, but I'll, I'll uh, bring up, Mm -hmm. I'm going to point us to some specific stuff. He is also the co-author of something called a white paper called the bipartisan Moneyball agenda. Oh boy. What? Yeah. Um, so this is Robert Gordon, uh, co-author with a guy called Ron Haskins, uh, who's from the Brookings Institution. Oh no. Five thirty-eight, baby. No, 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 no. Um, so this, this white paper begins. So basically the, yeah. And I'll, I guess, so the idea here is essentially to, uh, Using the framework of Moneyball, which I guess for our younger listeners, I don't want to explain Moneyball. Oh, oh, dude. All right. <laughs> so for our younger listeners, there is a man in Berkeley who's an asshole. His name is Michael Lewis. Um, he writes really obnoxious nonfiction books that are supposedly deeply researched about like various people typically who are sort of like above and beyond in kind of like a uh who's the tipping point guy it's malcolm gladwell Gladwell kind of like manner it's definitely like sort of like fodder for various like npr chat shows um (laughs) he he's like definitely in that circuit and he wrote a book in like the mid-2000s about the oakland a's uh like farm team system which it basically is like tipped off essentially like an entire epistemic awakening for like libs. Um, well, the ba- and, and like has, yeah. The basic idea is like, don't trust your intuition. Your intuition yeah. is wrong. You right. have like, in order to really like manage a baseball team well or run a government well or do anything well, you have to listen to a new crop of experts if you're familiar at all with the history of capitalism, this has happened a million times <laughs> right. uh, in different eras. But like, oh, a new crop of managerial experts will right. now be telling you what the right decision is to make. And how will you know it is the right decision that you've made? Because, because later it's... they will then tell you whether or not it was. Right. Um, right. So, and, yeah, and often and, it goes against the uh, y- your perceived obvious uh correct answer yes and and the other thing is that like there's some things there's some things that you can adduce with statistics very very quickly in a very short time frame the kind of time frame that public policy lives on there are other things that you simply cannot adduce their effects in that way um they include anything that has any sort of value-laden component um and so (laughs) not as far as robert gordon is concerned phil Phil, are you trying to say that uh public policy is more complicated than uh than baseball statistics yes and and, uh maybe there's daylight in between i was gonna say and maybe it's a bad thing for people who make their buck on baseball statistics to have any influence on how the rest of the world operates (laughs) (laughs) well the uh so uh thanks i think that's a i think that's a good uh as good a tee up as any for uh this 
for this situation. But yeah, so ba- basically Robert Gordon and his co-author, but Robert Gordon uh, is in this white paper advocating for uh, taking a moneyball approach to government. Um, I'll just read from the top here. Over quote, over the last two decades, government has made real progress in playing moneyball. Some programs now tell potential grantees that they need to bring the evidence if they're going to get the money. A few agencies support research institutes that fund, analyze, and publicly present rigorous research. Social programs now use far more data to support their efforts than even a de- decade ago. But use of evidence and data still isn't the norm for government. When we go into the drugstore and pick up some medicine, we know that the company that manufactured it has conducted gold standard research to demonstrate that the drug is safe and at least in important cases effective. Uh. When we log on to Amazon, we know that they are using enormous (laughs) amounts of data to tailor their suggestions to our interests. Uh. But when we interact with a typical government program, we don't expect and don't receive the same effective and refined use of research. Um, <laughs> okay, that point of order, that is not my perception of Amazon at all. Yeah, wait, yeah, other well, point of order, many government agencies have been forbade from using uh, the research statistics that they collect by uh, like members of Congress and oversight committees, so fuck you. <laughs> Fair. Uh, but just so, I, I don't want to, I mean, I guess I don't want to dwell on this uh, on this thing too much, but this, you know, this is one of these, one of the characters who is, again, a team lead on the HHS transition yeah. uh, picking team, so I think this is like, this kind of counts as uh, relevant information, basically, especially considering that like uh, contextually, you know, whether it's like Medicaid, for instance, like HHS oversees CMS, which does, uh, which, you know, can approve or disprove, uh, like demonstration waivers for Medicaid, um, and a bunch of different things. Basically they advocate for, you know, they, they go through like the pillars of success in a moneyball strategy for government. Ew. Um, <laughs> no. so the, it's basically, <clears throat> it's all this, it is very much this, um, you know, what, what the watchword of evidence-based policy, like uh, became, especially under the. Uh, Obama administration, which is like, you know, build up, build up data to prove uh, your little point, um, define, uh, you know, pillar two is like define successes in terms of measurable, transparent outcomes. The third pillar is, uh, quote, create incentives to do what works in a well-functioning market. Companies that satisfy their customers and turn a profit grow while less successful firms either improve or die. Sometimes public sector programs can successfully simulate this environment by conditioning public funding on outcomes. See, the problem is we don't have enough competition. (laughs) Right. So, so like, let me, here's, here's a great way of testing whether or not, um, this, approach to governance does anything at all for anyone, whether or not (laughs) like you or somebody you know has benefited from it. Okay. Here is the list of successes on the results for America, which is linked to this money ball for government. This is their (laughs) list of successes. Okay. Number one, success, November 17th, 2016, increasing awareness and demand for evidence-based policymaking. No. Uh, successes. <laughs> Building capaci- uh, credibility for evidence-based policymaking. Uh, publishing mm. the national best-selling book, Moneyball for Government. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, oh, my God. 
uh, yeah. So I mean, it sounds like look. someone who's only ever done an in, like internship, just like padding their resume until it fits yeah. the job description. Yeah. Speaking of speaking of lacking like like evidence, a, a base of evidence of for the efficacy of your organization. Yeah, it, its efficacy is made itself more popular. Right. So, so but like, okay, it, when you get down to it, these people are like, well. Uh, what are we for? We are for using evidence about what works to inform government policy. We think government should have good data. We should think, you know, they should make their evidence, you know, make their arguments based on, you know, uh, evidence and and do policies which we will, you know, sort of know have some good effect. Uh, I don't know. Pretty uncontestable uh, right. uh, claims or desires. Um, however, uh, like when the rubber meets the road, the question is like, and what happens to actual human beings as a result of the mm-hmm. sort of uh, the use of these things? And I think what I've seen and, you know, a very practical level, like what really matters in these studies of like what works ends up being uh, and really just like taking for granted so much of the policy scape that exists. Right. Uh, what works if you hold constant the fact that uh, local governments have no money, what works right. if you hold constant the idea that like, oh, yeah, we're going to have to keep spending the amount that we do um, at some sort of like global level on uh, incarceration. So like the, the classic example of this is like in in the sphere of um, criminal justice policy, uh, a lot of these people got behind the decarceral uh, a banner some years ago, but their their big strategies were like, oh, we're gonna do these things that are evidence based programs to like reduce recidivism. Well, mm-hmm. the recidivism rate uh, can be pushed down in any number of ways, including people dying once they leave jail. So, <laughs> I mean, and they have these sort of programs which are like, let us let's do these sort of bare minimum. Uh, for what we might consider to be justice under this incredibly elaborate rubric of frameworks that like it, you know, again, don't contest the idea that we should like be making decisions based on like some kind of evidence. But what it ends up being is sort of putting the thumb on the scale uh, in favor of whatever the status quo kind of happens to be. You don't get major programming like a NASA would have never emerged from this kind of program. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. Medicare would have never emerged from it. Social security would have never emerged from it because those <laughs> ideas came from highly synthetic political projects that were genuinely responding to the real evidence that matters, which is like what people need to live. Hell yeah. Um, right. So yeah, it's, I, I, yeah, this is not, this doesn't surprise me by any means. This is right. very, this is very much a hot commodity. It is, seen as the sort of uh, sine qua non of like professionalism uh, within government. But it is when you think about the bureaucrats that staffed the New Deal, they were uh, intellectuals, right? But the intellectual life world that they inhabited was one in which like people had to read Hegel and Marx and Weber Mm -hmm. um, and like actually thought about things at a scale that was not like literally... Moneyball. Yeah, like serving well, the god look, Phil, of the Phil. god of statistical efficacy. In these in these guys' defense, those those uh policymakers like didn't have the opportunity to make shitloads of money off of airport <laughs> books because airports didn't exist at that point. You know, or at least the airport concession industry 
industrial complex did not exist at the level that it does now. I mean, I, I can't, I can't, uh, you can't fault these people for train for, station book. Yeah. Right, for not yes, leaving. Exactly. <laughs> for, I mean, um, if they didn't do airport books, they'd just be leaving money on the table. And well, I forget do. that Maynard Keynes wrote many a uh, popular many a train, train book. station book. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't all hits guys. Oh boy. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> So I, I want to, I, okay, if you're not, okay, so if you're listening to this and you're not totally with us uh, on this and you're like, oh, no, I'm really, sorry, that was I my don't apologize for it. No, 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 I don't mean about the, that, those jokes. If you're listening to this and you're not totally with us on this, like, on uh, the, the, like, you, you may, you, you may be thinking to yourself, um, this is harm reduction still, right? Or like, okay, compared to a Trump official, right? The death panel me, is hysterical. No, but no, really, I'm I, I'm being bad. I'm being serious here. You may you may be thinking to yourself, you know, wh- whatever. Like this is this is maybe harm reduction. It's better than a Trump official, uh, and you know, obviously, this guy is one guy on the transition list. He is, however, a team lead. So this does say a lot about the kind of ideas um, that are going to be, you know. Uh, brought in to Mm -hmm. these agencies and as we've talked about a lot the makeup of agencies does a lot about what actually is going to happen much more so than even like the big figureheads or whatever but the thing is uh but but then so if you if you continue to read into this document one of like among there there are two things i just want to flag one of which will be immediately anathema to anyone who's uh say like more on the liberal side or something which i don't know how you've made it through listening to this podcast but um congrats the yeah congratulations um but uh one of like one of one of the uh ideas that they uh you know give a give a big old gold star to is um Paul Ryan's proposed opportunity grants um Woo! which were yeah, which were the idea of rolling up a variety <laughs> of uh, entitlement uh, program, a variety of entitlement programs like uh, whether it's uh, SNAP, welfare, uh, supports of other kinds, childcare, housing assistance, anything um, that all of those blanket types of aid uh, would get rolled up into these, uh, you know, opportunity grants, which would be, I think, block granted out to states. Uh, but then basically that absolutely um, terrible idea that uh, aid recipients, people who are applying for this welfare would be required to work with a social worker to draw up a quote unquote life plan. Um, and that uh, quote unquote, this is literally, I'm li- and then I'm literally quoting I, this part I, from I, the I document know. quote and able-bodied people would be required to work. So work requirements for welfare. Which, Again, oh, by it, the way, uh, <laughs> what's the, <laughs> What's the evidence base on that? Uh, I don't know. Maybe just look through the archives of the National Bureau of, I don't know, Economic Research to just see <laughs> how absolutely fucking abysmal everything that happened under welfare reform was. And is now there's a complete consensus in the literature. This is, the idea that this is anything but just masquerading for naked neoliberal ideology is mm-hmm. just delicious yeah and then <laughs> it's really the the epitome of dignity of risk and then the second right and well and it gets worse too because this oh, well, great. i don't know i mean it's about as bad i think but it, it, there's another bad thing which is the second thing <laughs> there's more bad <laughs> there's more bad i don't want to i don't want to give these the dignity of tearing how bad they are because they're both bad neither of them <laughs> are bad. things that i think are have any have any place in american public policy uh although obviously 
they are very much <laughs> of a piece with current American public policy for <laughs> honestly years, at this so, point you know, I'm like ready for you to be like and Paul Ryan has been just been tapped to be like the OMB director <laughs> no I mean it's uh it's just uh, it's, it's within this document itself this uh, like Moneyball for government uh document that basically um so they have a proposal. They basically they talk about how uh, they essentially get into this whole thing about how evidence based policy, like money balling government, um, can be used to again further target programs in order to better serve the because that's the problem. We the aren't targeting people well enough. <laughs> really need them, which is the same line that you hear from any any austerity ghoul we don't in the even fucking world. Collect statistics on how many people have autoimmune diseases. So as long as we just like create these like targeting goals and then we don't count people, what a great way to just drop everyone through these massive fucking cracks. Well, you won't be surprised to find that what you just said is very appropriate. So, <laughs> Damn it. Um, I'm just laughing to keep from screaming at this point. So uh, I'm just going to read from this directly. Uh, oh quote, the same approach could also help strengthen some of America's largest and most important programs. <laughs> For example, the disability insurance program within Social Security provides a safety net for millions of Americans who have worked hard during the, worked hard oh my God. during their lives but are not but are no longer able to work due to illness or injury. The program costs more than $140 billion per year, and the share of working-age Americans who are receiving payments has risen substantially over the last three decades. So I guess he really doesn't like people like B being on SSDI. Yeah, just um, imagine him uh, teaming up with Zeke Emanuel, just saying. Uh, he then says... <laughs> Or they they then say, as Jeff Liebman and Jack Smolligan have shown, there are, uh, there are innovations in the program that might help protect the vulnerable, hold overall costs to current or lower levels, and enable more individuals to stay in the workforce. Guys, you really and, can have it all. You can have yeah. it all. I don't know if you knew this. There's a science of having it all. <laughs> um, it's called Moneyball. Continuing yeah. uh, quote. And the, relentless, the relentless pursuit of productivity. Uh, and the Social Security Administration could be testing these approaches today if oh. it had appropriate authority and funding. Oh. Congress should provide them. Um, <laughs> but obviously, you know, if this person is within an arm's reach of SSA, that's bad. Um, oh. So yeah. let me let me point to let me that's point so to what uh, what they're talking about. I had to I had to look I had to like look to see what they're speaking of specifically. So this they they because they're basically saying in a very vague way. There are cuts that you could make to SSDI that would keep it so that you're targeting, you know, the people who are really disabled. You know, making sure those fakers with, you know, just simple back pain from, you know, decades of horrible working conditions don't get their benefits, too, because their their places really die on the production line, isn't it? Well, they I mean, they chose those careers and they chose that back pain. But so, the, <laughs> but so the Jeff Liebman and Jack Smolligan uh, research paper, I found it. Um, this is a proposal and uh, research around something called a work disability functional assessment battery or WDFAB, oh, about this. Uh, which would be a ghastly evolution from the current like activities of daily living assessments, which are already fucking this really is bad. So bad. Mm. Um, I mean, do you want to explain it or no, no, no. yeah? So, um, I'll get too angry. <laughs> basically, uh, to quote from this other paper, WD fab, uh, uses item response theory and computer adaptive testing to quickly interview individuals and systematically map their physical and mental health functioning. Um, 
uh, it is a, sta- a comprehensive standardizing assessment while uh, that minimizes user burden. Item response theory orders survey items, questions, hierarchically for each consult, uh, construct of interest, allowing score estimation at the item level. Basically what happens is they, uh, it's like a 300 question uh, test battery of which you may only see like 50 of the questions because it's like a computer tiered. Uh, yeah, it's like almost like how you would do a skill tree. Right. right? But it, basically it will rank you as between zero and 100 level of disabled. Can I get really nerdy Um, for like two seconds here? I promise this will be short. Go for it. Mm -hmm. This is exactly the opposite of what the UN and WHO, not particularly, you know, organizations known for their like left leaning, you know, um, helpful to the survival of human beings ideology, right? That this proposal of sort of creating these like, uh, like branched questionnaires in order to partially automate the evaluation process you know the the kind of thing where someone has to go visit our friend steve way and make sure that he's still disabled even though he will be forever and has been his whole life you know those kinds of standard you know heavy burden on the on the customer issues right to sort of standardize them into a way that that will so drastically reduce the picture that we have of disability that is already so fucking limited. Right. I mean, it it's, lets you hyper target right. like exactly what degree. It's exactly yeah. the opposite of like what for 15 years the WHO and UN have been basically begging the United States to implement, which is like the ICF framework, which has like a way of looking at the modality and different social factors that impact disability, like inaccessible housing gives you two points. You can't like not look at things because the question tree tells you like, if yes, proceed to seven, if no, proceed to two, that's not going to give you any picture of the person's life. And this is going to result in absolutely horrendous burdens to access disability services because you're going to rely so much more on diagnosis as a qualifying factor, which so many people can't even afford to get diagnosed in the first place. Right. Oh, and mm-hmm. part of it is to uh, further automate and make it easier to do reevaluation. Yes. So it's basically the same. I mean, you know, during the, this is, a, this is essentially a proposal that would amount to um, the same thing that like a lot of, um, you know, disability rights act, activists like got very up in arms about over uh you know cms proposed changes mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. um so anyway it's not good i uh, mean not great. yeah I, look the if you want to ask the question of like how do people get into these positions like there are there are a few basic career, career trajectories and while the you know the, these people have you know, not revealed themselves yet to be quite as ghoulish as like a Sima Verma, like make no mistake, these trajectories, you know, uh, effectively like managerial consulting, uh, the insurance industry, um, you know, these trajectories, including government, which is now so suffused with this particular managerial ideology that 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 came over, you know, during the neoliberal period uh, from from Thatcher. And you can look at something like all of Al Gore's videos for like reinventing government in the 90s uh, was an example of this, like changing the citizen into the consumer and changing the government into some sort of agent of the market that like. The, those things will persist. Like there will still be bad ideas. It might not look like like work requirements for Medicaid, but it certainly will not be um, things that like have a inability to, you know, have a transformative potential 
in, in people's lives. And I think the, you know, on the one hand, do I expect necessarily ever like those ideas to emerge from within the bureaucracy itself? No, but I think that like, look at the, look at the worlds that generate the sort of uh, recruitment and uh, into, into government and they're, they're not good. I mean, there's a lot outside of government that needs to change uh, too, if this is ever going to mm-hmm. get better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe as a, maybe as a final topic for today, mm-hmm. we can, you know, think, cause we've got to wait for these, these, uh, this beautiful stable of racehorses <laughs> to, um, to come actually in and get into office and start, you know, doing their work to really be able to evaluate and have an idea of where we're going. But I think maybe as sort of an important last conversation, we can talk about, where we're at right now at the local level in terms of COVID response, because obviously these um, federal positions are going to have a huge impact on what local governments and municipalities are going to be able to do. But as it stands right now, you know, those people are not in office and we are still in the midst of a pandemic. And that's where you're starting to see the real horror shows play out, I think. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, it's pretty bad. I mean, Phil, you shared this uh, story about, about Illinois with us earlier this week and, um, you know, sort of what's going on in terms of like actually being able to enact like the job of doing public health maintenance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, like there's, I think it's worth thinking about this in like three periods of time, like what happened since March. There's like the first period of time, which was like the, uh, the real thing that mattered was that state and local governments took very, very, very big steps. I mean, it wasn't, I wouldn't call them lockdowns, but like major, major uh, shutdowns of of various parts of of the economy. Um, By July, much of that uh, had crumbled or cratered, sometimes because these things were actually like challenged um, in in court as they were in Wisconsin. Um, But in other cases, just like gradually because of revenue constraints, I think, uh, state and local governments just sort of eased up. Um, and now we're in a situation where, like, even though things are far worse than they were before, and, and they're getting worse even beyond what the gating criteria that, that local governments, like, set up, the gating criteria were only prospective. They were only gating uh, right. people mm-hmm. into um, greater sort of... Uh, openness and greater permissiveness for firms in terms of the ability for them to manage their own um, public health mitigation measures. Um, There was no plan in many of these cities for like, how do you know when you have to go back to Mm -hmm. what you looked at in March? And even in in places where there might have been um, something like that, which there really wasn't. But what we're seeing now is situations where like the health commissioner in Winnebago County, Illinois, which is where Rockford is, um, the health commissioner basically it's like dealing with a major outbreak, but has w- will have zero cooperation from the sheriff's uh, department. Uh, it's like mm-hmm. basically refusing to like basically said anything that you might uh, set up as a policy like we will not enforce. Right. And um, so the question is like, now, like the federal government has has not given state or local governments any kind of uh, in- fiscal incentive to like continue um, like public health measures, and now uh, there will be no sort of 
raw material uh, enforcement capacity in many of these places. And the consultants that they brought in to design these gating criteria things never thought about uh, maybe there will be a point in time in which it will not just keep progressively getting better teleologically, but instead (laughs) we will have Mm -hmm. to go back in time to what we did uh, before. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it's really, uh, I, I think that, there will have to be some sort of reckoning with this uh, at, at the local level. That, that's where the real uh, authority and capacity exists. I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's not happening. Right. And I mean, yeah. you know, as we were joking about earlier on at the top of the show, like New York is just like New York is actually one of the few cities that did have a, um, a set of guidelines in place for sort of sort of sort of yeah very loosely and poorly done because as they're starting to need to be implemented right now we're realizing you know obviously like just how bad the minimal planning was that went on um we were joking about like oh well <laughs> the state is now saying like oh you got to close restaurants at 10 p.m right but still allowing indoor dining and they're they're at a point where they're going to have to close down the public schools again this week but there are a bunch of businesses that are going to remain open and mm-hmm. like the NYPD is probably also the largest vector of disease spread within New York City to begin with at this point. So it's it's incredibly difficult to to sort of imagine how we can actually meaningfully make a difference in in like the total amount of like death and destruction here without doing some really radical things at the well, at the policy level. Well, I mean, I think here's here's the thing is that like you know, like the stuff that Phil's pointing to that even in, even in situations where like public health officials are trying to do stuff at at the local level, um, the difficulty in getting actual implementation of those things, uh, put forward and the sort of collective, you know, again, the, like, what did we, what did I say before the, like, you know, the, like, uh, pessimism of the will or whatever to actually Mm -hmm. do these things. I think the, I mean, uh, on the, on the patron episode this, this week, which, uh, I would highly recommend we talked at length about the Pfizer vaccine and how the, the optimism over that is like sort of overblown. And I think that like, I guess the, these things that have been coming out about, uh, like these sort of, these like disasters at the local level, uh, to me just show like, yeah, obviously, you know, people like people can get all upset about as I've seen tons of people online today, for example, getting all upset about like about New York City, clo- like talking about closing public schools and not talking about closing restaurants mm-hmm. or gyms mm-hmm. or things like that. But like, I mean, I'll fundamentally think about it. It's like, what is their goal but to get tax revenue? Right. Um, and if they're in the absence of actual material support and the actual absence of actual like state and local support, this is just, you know, everything gets like stripped out basically. And so you can't just look forward to like, oh, well, we should close the bars and restaurants and then like leave the, uh, leave the schools open, uh, as though spread can't happen in a school, which just seems insane. Cause it's a building like any other, but like, uh, you can't just like, you know, do, do this like one trick to work. You have to have like a combination of all of these, like a confluence of all these things, like, sure treatments that are coming is is like hopeful that's one of the reasons you do lockdowns is Mm -hmm. to bide time for you know quote-unquote lockdowns like not that we've actually done those but like that's one of the reasons you would do a quote-unquote lockdown is to buy a time for a treatment right if we wanted to do like what china is doing and china has done actually a very good job of like suppressing spread through actual lockdowns which again in the u.s we have not done that gives you a significant advantage going into the winter where you're going to have 
more opportunities to spread. But you need like any of these things that cannot, you can't do it without like actual profound economic and social supports, basically. Right. Right. Well, and and this is the thing is that I think at some point that the strategy that like local governments have been using is like, well, try to avoid imposing unpopular decisions in hope that Congress through our lobbying and advocacy eventually comes to the table and, and, you know, uh, is able to, to pass something meaningful that enables us more safely to, to sort of do that without, you know, going, uh, you know, going into a sort of financial emergency and pushing our constituents into a financial emergency. But I think if you follow the lesson of why Congress ever passed CARES even in the first place. It wasn't because of lobbying or advocacy. It wasn't because Mm -hmm. people did this sort of like, uh, we're going to like, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of thing. It was because their state and local governments took decisive action that ended up having the effect of uh, causing uh, the financial markets to uh, take a huge, huge uh, tumble. And that was the thing that uh, brought uh, Congress to the table. You know, consumer spending went down, uh, you know, all of the sort of like leading economic indicators just like plummeted. And that is the only way that I can see Congress doing this. So, in fact, Mm -hmm. local governments and state governments, if they're able to coordinate on simply doing what is in the interest of public health, I think they will ultimately get or be much more likely to get what they want from Congress than if they just sort of wait around, hope that lobbying and advocacy work. And, right. uh, you know, in the meantime, many of their uh, constituents uh, die or get sick. I mean, waiting around and, and hoping is not going to save anyone in this instance. And I think the other thing that really needs to happen from a cultural perspective, you know, beyond sort of like, us uh hoping i i don't even know like it feels weird to be like i hope the market crashes so they listen because that discounts the like power that individuals like need to feel in the situation and i think like socially what needs to happen is we need to stop pretending that this is like going to automatically be okay right Mm -hmm. this is a this is a disease that is something we haven't dealt with before it is scary this is an emergency it is not the time to like sit there waiting for something to happen. We need to make decisions. We need to, as a society, protect each other. We have to figure out a way to stop the spread as best we can, because if we continue to create these like situations where there's like despair and people are sick of it and they can't stay home and they have to go to work or they're trying to, you know, blow off steam because they are working from home and so they're stuck inside. So then they're like going out to restaurants. This like this is going to be very bad. And I think we need to stop pretending that everything's just going to be fine if we can hope and cross our fingers and wait. I'm not saying like to be doom and gloom and scared. I'm saying we need to be realistic about right. the very dire situation that global public health is in, the fact that the United States is right now probably one of the worst instances that we're going to see, but it's not just the United States. It's all over. I mean, you look at Sweden right now, Martin Kohldorf's like shining example, Sweden's got cases rampantly, exponentially increasing much more than the countries around it. And so mm-hmm. we have to be realistic and we have to think realistically, you know, and consider the actual context that we're in, which is an emergency. Yeah. And the longer we've like, you know, play this game where everything's just going to be fine in another two weeks and another two weeks, it's like, 
we're on the glide path to like somewhere really bad, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I don't really want to be on Societal any glide path for all who want it. Uh, um. I'm, I'm fine with a glide path towards communism as long as it's like a really short one. Hell yeah. But, um, uh, yeah. Nothing Cliff else. dive to uh, communism. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I'd, I, you know what? What if we just felt we're so good at falling through the cracks in America? What if we just fell through the cracks into communism? <laughs> Bam. Overnight. You're good to go. Um, anyway, so if that, if, if that whole, uh, situation, uh, bummed you out, I definitely recommend to, uh, go, uh, go back and listen to our, if you, if obviously if you haven't, if you're not a patron, go back and listen to our, uh, patron episode from this week, the end of history and the four seasons. Um, because while it may bum you out a bit more to hear about, the Pfizer vaccine, for example, <laughs> at least at the end, we, uh, we make some jokes about, uh, Rudy Giuliani and it's a, yeah. a fun time is had by all, but it's, it's important because our, our only real like tool as individuals is to recognize the scale. And, and that's mm-hmm. like, that's important. So, mm-hmm. uh, highly recommend the Patreon episode. That's patreon.com slash death panel pod. You know, parting words, guys, parting words. Well, stay safe. Try not to get COVID because clearly nobody else is uh, going to help. My parting word is one of defiance. I've heard it pronounced tachany and tachony <laughs> by New Jersey transit conductors. So I'm sorry if you're from North Philly and call it tachony. I'm still saying that it is it is permissible by the laws of New Jersey transit to call it both. <laughs> I think that's Damn, a I was, try- place I was trying to be magnanimous the- and Phil just decided to be petty. <laughs> Join and the if- Discord if you don't know what we're talking about. Well, actually, yeah, or or listen to the, the this is a, an, an explicit reference to our patron episode this week. So become a patron. Anyway. Yeah. You'll also get a discount on merch. Everybody wins. Um, anyways, I think that's enough for this week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Please. Oh, yeah. Bye bye.
Bruno de två uh, superspreader no. event. Det är också be a virus and uh, do not know if I'm a scallop or a virus. I have uh, become an actor in the uh, actor network theory. Yeah, true actor network hours. Uh, Please say Mike's were on for that. Uh, my mic was on for that. Mine was too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What was it we were Hell listening yeah. to the other day where it was a real French person talking, but Artie was like, that sounds like Phil doing a French accent. <laughs> oh, we were listening to the BBC World oh, right. Service. And oh, it was yeah. literally, literally a guy came on BBC World Service being like, and uh, you know cases that going up? Uh, we do not know the source of the new cases is and uh, very bad it is uh, very bad yes <laughs> should we get started all right let's do it <laughs>